0: Hey, this is Pastor Mark. You do not want to miss this week's podcast. You're going to laugh till you cry, but it's good tears. They're good tears. So, man, tune in, listen to this podcast. It's going to inspire you, encourage you, and, and prayerfully help bring change that you desire in your life. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Now stand up. Hold your Bibles up high. Say, This is my Bible. I am what it says I am, I have what it says I have. I can do what the Bible says I can do. Today I'll be taught the Word of God, and I boldly confess, my mind is alert, my heart is receptive, and I'll never be the same again. Never, 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 in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're so glad to have you here, I'm glad to have those of you watching online, worshiping with us online. Uh, always great to have an experience together and experience the presence of God, and we know that God is everywhere; it's not just in one location. So we know that wherever you are, He is. Uh, we're finishing the series today, entitled "Get in the Game." Uh, so many people in the world, all of us actually, have a gift or a knack for uh, seeing problems. I know that you know we see them in others. We see the problems <clears throat> in our world, <clears throat> and we uh, we have a tendency to. Once we see those problems, a couple things happen. One, we become hopeless and go, it's never gonna change. Uh, The other option to that is we become critical and rather than becoming a person who begins looking for a solution, uh, all we ever do is talk about the problem. How many of you know that talking about a problem doesn't make the problem better and it doesn't make it go away? And so the idea here is to learn how to be a part of the solution in a world that is fallen, and uh, we are a part of that fallen world, and and uh, sometimes that creates a sense of hopelessness that keeps us uh, from thinking about all the possibilities. And we serve a God with whom nothing is impossible. Hold on a second, I I need I need uh, I need some minerals and vitamins. Thank you, Brian. So. The challenge here is maintaining an attitude uh, of gratitude, an attitude that says, I believe that nothing is impossible with God. Now here's the, the catch. We can't fix other people, and oftentimes we cannot fix the problem. But let me start here. We can provide information for others and to others that will cause them to think about where they are in life, the attitude that they possess, It may not fix them, but it does give them information that can change them. You can only change you. I can only change me. I can't change other people, but I can disseminate the right information that will empower them and enable them to make a decision that will benefit their life. The challenge is that we often don't think in those terms. We look and say, it is what it is. Well, it is what it is for the moment, but that doesn't mean it's going to be what it is. Uh, there was a man who was very dissatisfied with his life, and as he looked around the world, he had decided, I, I can't fix anything, I can't fix anybody, so maybe I'll just remove myself and have a very quiet existence and a, a very secluded relationship, an intimate relationship with God. So he we went to a monastery, and... And asked and inquired what he could do to be a part of it. They explained it to him in detail. And one of the the biggest things that he had to address when they told him what he had to do. Was they said you can only speak two words every ten years before the priesthood. And uh, he really was kind of excited about that because he had sensed in the world that all the words and the exchange of words had done nothing good. It, but discouraged him, actually. And so he joined the monastery, and, and uh, the first ten years go by. And at the end of that ten years, uh, he is sitting at dinner with the priesthood. And they said, you know, your first ten years have gone by. We told you you could speak uh, two words at the end of that ten years. And his two words were, hard bed. Okay. Priests all knew that. You know, it wasn't anything new to them. Think, okay. So 10 more years go by, and his time again is amazing. He had lasted 20 years in commitment to God and, and just putting himself before the Lord. And, and uh, so they're sitting at the table, same priesthood, 20 years older. And uh, they looked at him and said, nodded, and he said, bad food. <laughs> okay. We understand we don't have the best chefs and that we live this kind of life and we've chosen to live it and we understand what you're saying. So now 10 more years go by. Now it's been 30 years that this man had been solely committed to God and the monastery and serving God and worshiping God. And they came together again, same priest. Nobody had died. Head priest is there. And uh, they sit down and they nod again. You got two words. He said, I quit chief priest looked and said you might as well all you ever do is complain and so what i'm saying is you can never run from being a complainer complaining's inside out you know he went to the monastery hoping to change and nothing changed except the surroundings let me just say something to you don't let the surroundings change you you change the surroundings by your attitude and the words that you speak Too often, we're looking for other people to to try to change things and fix things when in reality, the answers and solutions to our lives are not resident in someone else. They're resident in us. Now, we may get assistance through someone's words or wisdom, and those words of wisdom may give uh, new light to where we are and how we're thinking and give us the opportunity at that point to say, I'm going to embrace that new attitude uh, you know, I grew up in a family uh, that was filled with fear, older brother, younger brother. And, you know, it, it was just a part of my life. I, I heard my parents say what they said, and they're good people. My dad's in heaven. My mom will be there soon. And, and uh, you know, I, I grew up in this Christian home, but it wasn't a faith-filled home. How many of you know you can grow up in a Christian home, but not a faith-filled home? And so I grew up in a Christian home, but we didn't talk a lot about faith. We were always the underdogs, lower middle class, never going to change. Everybody's out to get us. And and so I grew up with that and something inside me, I don't know where I heard it or what I heard, but something inside me changed and said, "I'm not going to live the rest of my life this way." And I began to find different people and churches and when I got born again that could feed in me. Uh, The good and the positive and the faith, that seed that God had put in me and God's put in every one of us a seed of faith. The question is, are you watering the seed of faith or are you cultivating the nature of fear? Uh, Every one of us at the same time live in a world that's fallen, filled with fear. The Bible says perfect love casts out all fear, not fear and faith, but perfect love. So the love of God comes in to drive out the fear, which clears the way for you and I to water the faith that he's put in us. But nobody is going to be responsible at the end of your life for your life except you. You can blame other people but it's all about the series of decisions that we have made that lead us up to the point where we are and the point where we will be. And so I'm laying a foundation today talking about faith because faith is the foundation of our Christian life and that we exercise faith in Christ, though we haven't seen him, we believe in him. And uh, every church needs to have a mission statement. What is this church about? Just like every home really needs to have a mission statement. What's our home going to be like? What are we going to allow in our home? What are we not going to allow in our home? And the reason isn't because of judgment or legalism. It's because we create the culture that we feel is going to make our lives better. So at Mosaic Church, our mission statement is creating culture of love, grace, and mercy. Now, when I use those, yeah, thank you. I like it too. But, but I want to drive these points home today because, first off, we live in a world that really is so filled with anger and hate. And I'm not saying that to judge the people who would say, yes, it is, and I'm one of them. I hate this. I hate that. But what I want to say is love is very difficult because most of us don't feel like we deserve love. And you know what? That'd be exactly right. Except that this, this... That God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. It wasn't because we deserved it. It was because He loved us so much. He wanted to reveal Himself to us. And He revealed Himself to us through love. That Christ would die if no man ever chose to change. He would bring about a deposit that would offer us the opportunity. That's all we can do to anybody is offer them an opportunity to change. Grace is a dirty word in a legalistic world. Uh, Because most people think grace is the endorsement of living life the way we want. I'll get to that in a moment. It's not. And then mercy. These are three things that if I could say anything about Mosaic Church, even though I actually thought the worship was probably better than it's ever been today, because I'll fly away. Awesome stuff. I'm going to have to get some more boots, boot kicking music on up in here. Uh, that was just really good today. I actually felt like I was going to fly away. I did. I, I just for a moment, and uh, it was a great time. And uh, but you know, it's it's not just about the music. The music again creates an atmosphere, and that atmosphere is very positive. You know, it talks about the blood of Jesus and and the coming of Christ. All those wonderful things that that we dream of someday. And uh, the preaching, you know, it's it needs to be good. But at the end of the day, you might forget what I say. I hope not. And you might not remember the worship set that we just did. But there's one thing I promise you you'll never forget. is when somebody has loved you in a real obvious way, it changes the way you live. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People want to feel that. And, And, you know, when you look at somebody who comes in hungover, and I can just tell you, we always have hungover people here. You don't know who they are, but I know who you are. Why? Because I used to live a hangover life. You can't fool a preacher who's been there and done that, okay? You can, like, walk straight up all you want, but I see your eyes. It's like the road map of Oklahoma. And you know what? We just say, come on in. Because where sin abound, grace does more abound. We're going to make sure you feel loved. You're going to experience an embrace of grace. And mercy. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. You know, the Bible's a bit confusing. I have a, a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and probably the hardest thing I had to, to try to reconcile was there were parts of the Bible that seemed so very, very different. And so I was so confused because, you know, if you read the Old Testament, there are times that Israel is lit- literally wiping out and obliterating nations, and, and we, we don't understand the Old Testament as we read it in light of the New Testament sometimes. Understanding that mankind had fallen and there had been no real representation of God. Uh, that was very obvious, except the Ark of the Covenant, which everywhere Israel went, it seemed that the power of God went with them. But there was not a person. They literally slaughtered sheep as a sacrifice, was a sacrificial lamb once a year for the atonement of their sins, but not for the cleansing of their sins. So the Old Testament is very, very different than the New, so much so that theologians ask the question, is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament one and the same? That's that's how difficult it has been to reconcile. Now, I asked a professor, I said, look, you're going to have to help me here. And here was his words were his words to me that might help you. He said, always interpret the vague passages of Scripture in light of the clear passages of Scripture. So, the clear passages of Scripture are very simple. Sometimes you look and say, love never fails. So I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, and so we can see all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't you think that's pretty clear in the Greek, in the Latin, in German, in English? All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's very clear to me. Well, then the great debate, as only Christians can do, is well, what if I'm not baptized? Well, then Jesus turns and does this cool thing, and there's a thief on the cross, had never been baptized, didn't know Jesus, and they're hanging there. And, and, you know, the one on the left is scorning, ridiculing him, I believe it was the left, and on the right, he says, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus' response to that request was, today you shall be with me in paradise, which jacks up all the baptism stuff. It just does. Well, what if they're not baptized? Well, you know, I think it's a good thing because the Bible says baptism is uh, causing us to publicly recognize uh, an inward experience. So it's an outward reflection of an inward experience. And I think it's good. But if you were to ask me, do I think you have to be baptized to go to heaven? I'd say, absolutely not. I don't see scripture for it. And, you know, the thief on the cross wrecked all of that for all of you legalistic people. Not here, but online. (laughs) Because online people can't get to me right now. (laughs) So... <laughs> so anyway, the reason I say these things is because living the Christian life is can be very confusing if we complicate it. So I'm going to try to simplify it because I'm a very simple person. And I know that I need to know that I know that I know certain things about the Christian life that will empower me and enable me to live it to the full and to the end, okay? So James talks about faith and works. Faith without works is dead. We've all heard that if you've been at church any time. So James basically implies if you have no works, then you have a dead faith. If you have a dead faith, you really probably don't know God. That would seem to be James's implication. So in James chapter 2, verse 14... What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, here's the reality even if it's dead, it's still faith. If it's a corpse, if someone like my my dad passed away, I was there, and I'm seeing his lifeless body, yet he is still a person. His name didn't change. He just had no life in the body. So faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean it's not faith. It's just a faith that's not working. And what happens is this. Faith is what gets us to heaven. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For you are saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. So what we're seeing from Paul is your works will not get you to heaven. But let me tell you what will happen. Your works can bring heaven to earth. I get to heaven by grace through faith, but I can bring heaven to earth by acting in faith when I'm around other people. It doesn't mean that my good works get me there. It just means that the good work that's happening as a result of my faith in God might impart something to somebody else that will change their life. I need you to clap so I can get another drink. Okay, now, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe it, that and shudder. So he's saying, your faith, even the demons believe what you believe, and they shudder. But you need to do something with what you believe to prove that you believe it. That's kind of my interpretation. So anyway, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? When he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see that his faith and his actions working together and his faith made complete by what he did. Well, here's what theologians say: that Paul was saying that my faith or my my actions or my faith are a representative of my right standing with God or before God. What James is saying is my actions what create a right standing before man. There's not necessarily a disagreement, but James is saying that we are justified before men by our works, and Paul is saying we're justified before God by our faith. We need both faith and works, but your works will not get you to heaven, but your works will bring heaven to earth. I want to get that in us. Because when we exercise faith before other people, it's letting our light shine before them so that they can see good works, and it glorifies the Father in heaven. So many times people quit serving God and quit going to church because they can't quit doing what they were doing that was destroying their life. You can live a Christian life and go to heaven and be hell on earth. This is very difficult for people to reconcile and to misinterpret what I'm saying. The challenge here is that the church has told people, if you do the following things, you can go to heaven. And if you'll stop doing the following things, you can go to heaven. Both of those are wrong. A person who lives a really good life but doesn't profess faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they have been one of the greatest citizens ever, will not enter heaven because of those works. You will only enter heaven because you have exercised faith and confessed your need for a savior. It's like, we're at the 8 o'clock service and we don't even have one. Uh, Yeah, you're letting it soak in. Give me all the answers. I get it. And I have a lot of chatter now that I've opened it up. I mean, hello. Okay. It's my turn now. Okay. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And so this gets confusing, but what... Again, James is saying he's justified before men by what he does. Because we see two conflicting passages here. So what we have to recognize is faith is critical. And quite frankly, if you have faith in God and that faith and grace put together uh, it operates in your life, it will create activity in your life. And so get this, it's still faith even if it's dead. It helps no one else, but it has helped you by saving you. Our goal in life is not that we perform well or work well, but that we live well. And there is a difference in performing well and living well. And so we have to realize it's not our performance. It's Christ's performance that redeems us in our response to that performance on the cross. So true faith is both horizontal and vertical. We get heaven to heaven by faith, and we bring heaven to earth through active faith. We're justified by Christ and our faith in him, not by works. Paul speaks of our faith justifying us before God. James speaks of faith justifying us before men. Works are the fruit of our faith. Faith is not the fruit of our works. Please don't miss that. It's incredibly important that you don't think my works produce faith. No, they don't. Your faith is what produces works. There are people who work hard but have no faith and live their whole life full of fear and a lack of love. But people of faith are different because they have invited Christ into their life. And now the works that they do, they do by the strength of His Spirit. So works cannot justify us or justification means to make right works cannot justify us but works can testify of our faith they don't justify they testify and so when someone exercises faith i can easily ask them what is the fruit or what is the foundation of this fruit or this work some people say i'm just a nice person and that's okay It doesn't mean that nice person is going to heaven. How many of you know there'll be some mean people in heaven, some nice people in hell? (laughs) I'm just saying. That's a true story. There'll be some really nice people on earth that uh, will take the plunge. And there'll be some really mean people that will go to heaven. I just felt like that needed to be processed a moment. Because <laughs> some of y'all going, I ain't going then. Well, let me tell you, there ain't no suburb to either one. So you're stuck. <laughs> you're moving into one of the hoods. <laughs> I just suggest you pray that you don't get the mean one as your neighbor. <laughs> you know, the one doesn't mow their yard and keeps an RV outside. <sighs> yeah, I pray for one. Okay. Galatians 5 says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. So again, we see Paul addressing the idea that I can do something to be justified before God. I can do nothing except confess and be justified. He goes on to say, you're trying to be justified by the law. Uh, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You remember the scripture, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, he's saying, now, if I live in you, I have fulfilled the law. You no longer rely on your own ability and or intelligence to fulfill rules that nobody to this date has ever been able to fulfill. Not one person has kept the law. If anybody has kept the law, then Christ died in vain. He knew that no one could live under the law and obey it to the letter. So he said, the law, the letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. So we have to recognize our need to live our lives by faith, and faith is the foundation here of what I'm about to share. It goes on to say you have fallen away from grace. Not only have you been alienated from Christ, you have fallen away from grace. And so this is where we get the scripture I've fallen from grace. And and so, in just a moment, I don't want to miss this next point. Let's talk about the love rule. So, I'm talking about the rules of the game. Let's talk about the love rule for a minute. Above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. So, let me say this. This is really very, 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 very important. Your response to someone's wrong is critical to their life, future, and eternity, possibly. When someone sins, the Bible makes it very clear how we're to respond to sin. Unfortunately, typically, we look at the sinner and the impact the sinner had on us rather than looking at the sin that worked through them. Christ did not come and die for sin. He came and died for sinners. So he said, love covers a multitude of sin that comes through the sinner. So the very first thing that we do when someone hurts us, what? Hurt them back. It's typically our response. When we feel pain from someone, we inflict pain on that someone. That's typically how fallen man works. And so the reality, he said, the first thing we ought to do is cover them. How many of you know Luke chapter 15 says, if you find a brother in sin, go to him privately. This is what love does. Go to him privately. If your brother repents, then you've won a brother. If he repents of his sin, you've won him. Secondly, if he doesn't repent, take the elders with you and go to him And then if he doesn't repent, take it to the church. So what God is saying here in his word is, I love you so much that I want to cover the sin in your life so that the sinner can be redeemed. But when you shame someone, you have done no good whatsoever. You've done nothing but shame them. You think, well, they deserve that punishment. Do they really? What do you deserve? Because there is no category for sin. Well, this sin's worse than this sin. No. Now, with all of this said, there are boundaries. When someone's freedom becomes harmful to another person, then they have violated someone else's freedom. Freedom is not for the sake, if you have to use somebody else or hurt someone else for your freedom's sake, you have missed it. I think it was Will Rogers, it was one of those old smart guys, said, You're right. To rear back and swing your fist stops just short of my nose. In other words, your freedom to swing your fist must not do harm to me. And so there have to be boundaries even in love. There have to be boundaries in life. You can't let someone harm you and continue to hurt you. That is not God's plan. When someone does that, you can love them. You don't have to tell the world. You can step away from it, and you can move on with your life. But you don't need to tell somebody else's story. Somebody said, well, tell me about it. I said, that's not my story to tell. You have to let somebody else tell their own story. You can't go around. That's what love does. Let somebody else tell their story. Don't be telling their story to everybody else. Love never fails. Now, I know that some of us say, well, I've loved, and it didn't quite turn out the way I thought it would. And so you'd say, that scripture is not true. Well, I think it is. This is my thought because this, this was another scripture that bothered me in my preparation of this message. The argument between James and Paul bothered me. I think I figured that one out with some help of some really smart people. <laughs> I'm not saying I had, but this one's me. I figured this one out all by my lonesome, no commentary, nothing else. I just went to Jesus. I said, let's figure this out so I can have a little love up in here. All right, now, people may choose if love never fails. You say, well, I've loved and I've loved and I've loved, and, and, and it just is not working. Okay, people may choose to fail in response to your love, but love itself will never fail. In other words, love doesn't eliminate the possibility of rejection by the one being loved, but it never fails the one who is doing the loving. Because you can never do wrong by loving. Now, when love is rejected, sometimes you have to let it go. But that doesn't mean you failed, and it doesn't mean that love failed. It means that the person that you were loving Chose not to receive the love you were giving. So move on, sweetheart. No, and you know, you can, when, you, when you live that way, uh, it changes everything. When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, he gave them instructions. Take nothing but the little bitty things they needed. And he said, when you enter a home, if they receive it, then say peace upon this home. If they refuse to accept the message you're carrying, which is my message, he said, dust off your feet and get out. When Jesus had the rich young ruler approach him, and the rich young ruler had been very religious and legalistic, and he, he asked Jesus, what must I do? Jesus told him, and he said, I've done all those things since I was a kid. Jesus said, then good, sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. He doesn't say give everything away. He said just give to the poor. But this man had said he had much, so he went away sad. It didn't mean that Jesus didn't love him, but Jesus kept moving on toward the mission of God. It doesn't say that he didn't love him. He loved him, but he said, I got things to do and I'm going on my way. Love has boundaries. It doesn't mean your love is conditional. It means your love possesses boundaries. If someone is physically harming you, it doesn't mean that you can't love them from afar, but you don't put yourself in a place to be harmed. I just want to clarify that unless somebody go home and say, Pastor said just... Stick it out. No, get a Louisville Slugger. I'm just kidding. That's this right here. That's that's the Red Bull talking right there. No, just walk away, you know, use a bat as kindling. Anyway, so love does possess boundaries and you and I have to know those boundaries. Greater love has no one than this, then he lays down, lay down one's life for his friends. Okay. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, this scripture bothered me because it said, oh, I can't do everything Jesus commands. I cannot do that. I want to, my heart desires to, but I can't do it. Now, listen, sometimes we miss this in scripture. So if I stop there, it means I'm thinking in terms of everything Jesus commanded, I've got to make sure I do it or I'm not going to be a friend of Jesus. But if you look at that, that's verse 13 and 14. Now if I go down to verse 17 of John chapter 15, it says, this is my command. Jesus was clearly stating, this is my command, love each other. It doesn't say quit playing cards, quit dancing, quit smoking. It says, love each other. This is my command. He said, then we'll be friends. See, the great challenge is we're trying to, you know, we're trying to do everything right. And I applaud that. But the reality is there's nothing greater than love. At the end of it all, faith, hope, and love of these that remain is love. That's it. Why? When I get to heaven, I don't need faith because I'm standing in the face of Jesus. I don't need faith anymore. I don't even need hope anymore. All my hopes have been fulfilled. Heaven is real. I'm walking on streets of gold and I'm not paying a bank one stink, stinking dime of mortgage. OG&E is out the door. No gas bill anymore. Forget farmers and State Farm and Statewide and Geico and little lizards. I ain't paying nothing no more. I'm living with the one in heaven. I'm walking in love alone. Faith and hope, that's done, baby. I left that on earth. I'm in the face of Jesus right now. We're golfing with God. Mother Teresa put it this way: "Where are you, Mama? I have found the paradox that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more no more hurt, only more love. Quit! Don't ever quit loving. So well, I, I, it just hurts. What do you think? Ask Jesus what hurt is when you love." Only more love. That's all there was when Jesus is dying on the cross in pain. More love. The grace rule. I'll get through this real quickly. The grace rule. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. This is an interesting thought. The reason for the law was to actually point us to God. God knew when the Ten Commandments were written out that mankind would never ever be able to keep them all. That's why He created the sacrifices in the Old Testament knowing that they would only atone for, not cleanse the sin of mankind. So they would sacrifice a lamb without spot or blemish. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus, it says He became the Lamb of God because the Jews understood the sacrificial Lamb. So God Himself is pointing the people to Jesus saying, don't miss this. You used to sacrifice a lamb that only covered your sin. Now I'm bringing a lamb who's going to cleanse you of your sin so that there will now be no more condemnation to those who are in the lamb that was slain. And so the law or the trespass pointed us to God in reality. Many people still look at the law instead of letting the law point them to God and it says but where sin increased Craig, grace increased all the more. And so people, when I talk about grace, people say, well, you know, grace is just a license to sin. You don't need a license to sin. You were born with a license. What you need now is a license of grace that empowers you to address sin and address it every day that you get up so that you can walk in the power of grace which was donated or contributed to us by the presence of God. In His presence is fullness of joy, and wherever He is, there you will find grace. This is really going to get good in a minute. Paul said, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not... It's not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Legalism, living by a list of rules, is the lazy way out. We rely on rules so we'll know how to respond in any given situation. The trouble is, there are never enough rules to cover every contingency. Not only do the rules not work well, they also create several problems. A legalist is lured into believing he can satisfy God by keeping man-made rules, He settles for an external morality rather than an inner purity. His focus is on cultural conformity instead of biblical spirituality. He sets himself up as a judge over those who don't excel at keeping his rules. All this leads to an ever-increasing bondage. Our most important weapon against legalism is God's grace. It's not just something that saves us. It is there for us daily. In fact, it is the only resource we have that is powerful enough to make us do what God wants us to do. The law cannot empower us to do what God wants us to do. But grace is the power and energy of God for us to live a life of obedience and faith to God. Grace can no longer be purchased. Christ paid for it all. He bought it all. He gave it all to us, extended to us. There are people who push it away. They're not hungry for it. They don't eat from it. They're not there. In Romans 11, 2, 6, it's talking about Elijah. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Elijah was mad. Elijah felt like all of Israel had abandoned him. He's left alone to fight the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And Elijah's like, where is everybody? I'm the only one here fighting these prophets. And God says, and he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And that's, here's when God answers to him. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. In other words, you don't know everything, Elijah. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, not judgment. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If you can do anything to earn grace, it's not grace. Well, you know, God, I, 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 I'm, I've been a good person. I'm glad you've been a good person because I don't want any mean people. I don't like mean people to be around. You know, I like them. I don't like being around mean people that are hateful. I can't even watch debates on TV because people are just mean. Why can't we just agree to disagree and look and say, you know, we have a different point, but I'm interested in your point. I, I'm interested in your point. And, and, and just have a discussion. It confused the whole world. Whoever can get the meanest wins kinda so get this Hebrews chapter four, and this is the mercy rule, and I'm gonna be done, because I know y'all are hungry and some of you only came to church to eat, but you're gonna have to hear me first. Well, you wouldn't have had to if you'd have talked to the people who didn't come at all, and they just gonna come for the food. You know, we got a whole slew of people coming from Incredible Pizza that heard about this. I don't know what's gonna happen over there. Anyway, therefore, Since we we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, the thief will come to steal faith, Because it's the faith in you can speak to your mountains and say be moved from here to there and it will be moved, be cast into the sea. It's faith. So the thief comes to steal the faith. And so the writer of Hebrews, who some say is the Apostle Paul, said, hey, hold tightly to the faith you profess. In other words, don't just take it lightly. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our plural weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin verse 16 let us then approach god's throne of grace oh this is this stop right here let us then approach god's not throne of judgment throne of grace let me explain why when paul wrote to the church at corinth i believe it was first corinthians 11 he, he writes and he says, before you take communion honoring the blood and body of Christ, he says, judge yourself. When he says judge yourself, he said, the reason I want you to judge yourself because I don't want to have to judge you. If you judge yourself and call yourself a sinner who needs to be saved and needs a Savior, you have judged wisely. So you're no longer approaching when you pass from this life to the next. You will not approach a throne of judgment. You've already judged yourself and said, I am a sinner and I need to repent and I need to confess Christ and I need to be forgiven. You have judged rightly and you are now covered by the blood of Jesus. And that means the angel of death and judgment has to pass by you instead of fall on you. So now the reason people don't go to God and they don't pray and they don't know what to say is because they think they're approaching an angry mean God who is ready to smite them and judge them when in reality the writer of Hebrews says you're approaching a throne of grace. And some of y'all just mad at people and you don't want them to have grace. Pray grace upon their business. Somebody messes with you, God, just let your grace fall on them. And when grace falls on people, I'm telling you, it's like a hammer that breaks the sin and the hardness of some. Quit praying judgment on them and pray grace on them. Grace is what will break the sin that has a hold on their life. We want people, I've heard people say, well, I just want them to hit bottom, whatever it takes. I don't want them to hit bottom. I want them to find the net of grace. You have to clean up the mess when somebody hits bottom. But if they hit the net, usually it's pretty good. Quit praying, damnation on everybody. Mm-hmm. If you don't like your bosses? Say, God, grace, just grace. Hammer them with grace, God. Get that hammer out. Get that hammer out, God. Come on, bring on that grace. They won't know what to do with you. They will drug test you. (laughs) Love, grace, and mercy messes with mean people. It just messes with them. It makes them feel all kinds of guilty. What can I get you? I just love you so much, and I just speak grace and mercy over you. It will mess them up. You'll remember this tomorrow. I know you will. And then you'll get the hammer of judgment out. Anyway, so I can't fix you or change you, but I just imparted some serious info. And it goes on to say, approach it with confidence so that, get this, you we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Confusing. Receive mercy, but I have to find grace. This is one interpretation of that. When Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree God told them not to eat from them, we were all cursed by the sin that they received. It's called original sin. So when you're born, you had nothing to do with that. You were born, your mom and dad gave birth to you, you were born a sinner, not by your choosing, but by the choosing of Adam and Eve that followed every bloodline up to the day you were born. So when we approach the throne of grace in our time of need, the Bible says we receive mercy. Why? Because God knows we had nothing to do with the original sin. You don't even have to look for mercy. God said, i got mercy holding out for you. But now let me tell you something. You're going to have to find your own grace. In other words, I'm giving you an opportunity through mercy to find grace. Remember Jesus said, uh, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and it will be given to you. So once you have the mercy of God that takes care of the original sin, now you get the grace of God. Find the grace of God that deals with your daily sin so you can find grace in your time of need because I've given you mercy to get to grace. Somebody needs to get happy up in here. Thank you. Nobody ever told me that. I thought I was going to hell unless I played the right lottery card. Lotto for Jesus. Gamble for God. Go to church. Maybe I'll get to go to heaven. If I teach Sunday school, I'm sure to get in somewhere. Be living in a shack out back. (laughs) Mowing Billy Graham's yard. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, I better stop. So, mercy triumphs over judgment. James chapter 2. If I could say nothing else to you, remember this mercy triumphs over judgment. If someone is judging you, your response to them is mercy. Mercy will win out over judgment. Is this easy? Absolutely not. Don't you just want to reach out and slap somebody when they slap you? Only I want to slap them harder. (laughs) I want to knock them into next week, bless God. (laughs) It's my natural man. I'm just being honest. I know it messes with some of you, I I just can't believe our pastor would want to do that. Oh yeah. You pinch this, it hurts. You get a knife and cut it, it's flesh. It does. It just does. So I have to work on my soul, stand in front of the mirror and say, soul, we're going to have some soul fitness up in here. Mm -hmm. Get fit, my soul. Get all fit up in here, my soul. See. It ain't about your excess fat on the outside. It's that excess fat in your soul. You know, you ain't moving slow here. You're like, God, hit him. <laughs> jiggle, jiggle. Hit him, God. You got to get rid of that spiritual fat up in there. <laughs> Don't worry about that outside weight. It's that inside weight to make you want to go to hell. Okay. Lamentations 3.23. Can I just tell you something? Lamentations is a book you never want to read. I think it's that one and and, you know, there are a couple others in there. You're just going, what was he trying to say up in here? You know, Um, it's the book of lament. Well, let me just get all encouraged by lamenting. Isn't that a strange word? I lamented. Well, after you lament, repent. <laughs> Gain God's consent. <laughs> Dr. Seuss has come into the house. It is because of the Lord's mercy and loving kindness that we are not consumed because His tender compassions fail not. Your stability, they are new every morning, great and abundant. Your stability and, is your stability and faithfulness. And so we know that His mercies are new every morning. Access those mercies every morning. Remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. Love never fails. Love covers a multitude of sin. Where sin abounds, grace does more abound. We're creating a culture of love, grace, and mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when you come here and you see somebody you went to church with 15 years ago that was an idiot in your eyes, it's probably a God-ordained meeting. I ain't going to a church where they go, Sister Babbermouth. What are you, brother dummy? (laughs) And God says, you shall worship together if you're going to live together forever. It's just a thought, and not that many of you are excited about it, but I know lunch awaits. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. I want to pray a simple prayer that will make a profound difference in your life. Should you choose to pray it, exercise faith and believe it. As you pray it, it's very simple. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some of you are sitting in here you can't imagine the grace of God. You can imagine the judgment of God. You can imagine condemnation. You know what you've done. You know how many times you've done it. You know what you're going to do this week. And you're saying, I can't do this because. Well, Listen, let me say something to you. You don't get better by acting better. You get better by submitting better. You get better because you've chosen to allow the grace of God to empower you to address the sin of man. We need grace to empower us to do the right thing. Sometimes the right thing looks like the wrong thing until time goes by and you go, I'm glad I did the right thing. So I want us all to pray this prayer. Those of you watching online, those of you in house, pray this with me. Say, Father God, I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a savior you told me if i call on your name i would be saved so jesus today i call on your name i put my faith in you thank you jesus for forgiving me amen